So with all that said, um, before we get into our scripture for tonight, um, like I said, we're going to be going over 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to go to the first two verses. And if you're taking notes, um, did anybody bring their Bibles? Anybody bring their Bibles? Everybody brought their Bible? Yes? Yes? Right on. Yes. Cool. So our three points tonight, if you're, if you're going to be taking notes, uh, the first point is chosen. Uh, the second point is set apart. And then the third point is sprinkled. And so these are going to be our three points before, before we get into the message. Let's, let's pray because I want God to be here. Father, thank you so much for this time. I thank you for the worship, uh, for the worship in, in music, God. And I thank you that you've given us these things to be able to, to use to glorify you. Uh, I pray, God, that you would be with us now as we go over this, this piece of scripture, that you would uh, reveal more of yourself to us. And as, as I say every week, God, I pray that we would be different leaving this place than we were coming in. And uh, I just pray that you would cause us to grow in, in the knowledge of Christ. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's start by reading our verses for tonight. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the temporary residents dispersed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and set apart by the Spirit for obedience and for sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So for our first point, which is chosen, we're going to zero in on the last part of verse 1 and then the first part of verse 2, where it says, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, we have been chosen. We have been chosen. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. You know, let's look at this idea of us being chosen according to God's foreknowledge. Some of you may be aware uh, of this doctrine in Christianity that states that we are chosen for salvation. We're chosen for salvation. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this uh, because, frankly, it's exhausting. Um, but I believe that there's more fruit to be had elsewhere. But I just, wanna, I just want you to be aware of this doctrine so that you're not alarmed by anything whenever this comes up in your walk, because inevitably it will if it hasn't already. Um, I mean, yesterday, yesterday morning, so this guy, because I, I, I want you guys to be aware in case if it comes up, you're not like, oh, what's that? This guy called yesterday morning, he called the church yesterday morning, and he was, he was saying that he was super concerned for his faith. He was super concerned in his faith because another believer had shared with him um, a different perspective on something in the Bible. Like it was just a, it was just a different perspective on something in the Bible. And, and this gentleman, he was, this guy was legitimately, legitimately concerned about his faith because he had never really heard any other interpretations on this particular thing. It wasn't about being chosen, it was about something else. But, you know, praise God, I was, I was, I was, I was there and I was talking to him because I was able to encourage him. You know, and I was telling him that, you know, different understandings on this particular issue, on the, the particular issue that he was struggling with, like different understandings on this particular issue don't really bear any weight on salvation. It's, it's, it's what's called, it's, it's what's known as a peripheral issue. You know, in, in this faith, we have what are called essential issues, and then we have peripheral issues. You know, uh, how was someone saved? That's an essential issue. The only way that somebody is saved is through faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. That's essential. If somebody doesn't agree with that, first of all, they're wrong. And if they, and if they refuse to correct the, their way of thinking on that, because that's what the Bible says, then, hey, now it's time, now it's time to, to part ways. Because this is an essential issue. We're not going to compromise on this. But a question like, what are the end times going to look like exactly? What's it going to look, look like exactly at the end of days? That's a peripheral issue. You know, there are many different believers who have many different understandings of the end times. Many different interpretations, many different understandings. But that doesn't affect your salvation. You can be saved and have differing views on how the end of the world is going to come. Suffice it to say that there are some in Christendom, there are some in Christendom, going back to being chosen, who believe that your salvation is purely, purely God's choosing of you. You have no part in it. It's just God choosing you and that's it. 
And then you have other people in, Christ in Christendom who say, no, it's all your decision. It's your decision. You made the choice to believe in Jesus. So let's look at a couple of verses. Let's look at a couple of verses that talk about this. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. Also, just so you guys know, we're going to be jumping around. We're going to be jumping around a lot. So if you're unfamiliar with your Bible, put a bookmark on the table of contents because we're going to be jumping around. So if I say turn to a, page, a book that you're not familiar with, go to your table of contents real quick, cool, and then turn to that page because we're going to be jumping around the Bible. We're going to get to know our Bibles today. So Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. It says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So it says that he foreknew us. He foreknew us to be saved. He foreknew us and therefore predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be saved. And since he predestined us, he made sure to call us and justify us and to verify or to prove that we were predestined by him to be saved. So there's one verse talking about God choosing us. He predestined us. So now let's go to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. It's a few books over. You got Romans, and then you got 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians. So Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and will. So pretty straightforward here. Before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, he chose us. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to be adopted, to be saved. He decided this before the foundation of the world. But here's something to point out. If he has chosen us for salvation, predestined us for salvation, then that means that there are some that have not been chosen they have not been predestined for salvation, which would indicate that they have been chosen for wrath. They have been chosen and predestined to go to hell. But let's look at 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. It's closer towards the end. 1 John chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. So if God has chosen to save some and chosen to condemn others, how can it be said that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world? It should just say that he died for the sins of the elect. He just died for the sins of the chosen. Because how could he die for the sins of those who are destined for hell? If they're going to hell, but he died for their sins, then that means his death wasn't enough to cover their sins. So let's look at the Gospel of John now. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. I told you we're going to be jumping around. I'm sorry. I hope you stretched. I hope you stretched your hands. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 10 through 13. He was in the world, and the world was created through him. Yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, 
who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. It says that some did not receive him. Some did not receive him. And to those who did receive him, they were made children of God. So how can you receive something that has already been decided for you? Something that is basically being forced upon you. Others had the ability to reject it. It says that those, uh, his own did not receive him. They rejected him. They had the ability to reject him. So that means that you also have the ability to reject him as well. And of course, John 3.16. It's just a couple chapters over. Let's go to John 3.16. John 3.16, it says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. It says that God loved the world, not the elect. God loved the world so that everyone who believes so that everyone who believes, not everyone who has been chosen. There's, there's an open call aspect to this. And then there's 1 Timothy 2.4. You don't have to turn there. 1 Timothy 2.4. It says, God desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires all to be saved to come to the knowledge of the truth. So which is it? Are we chosen? Are we predestined? Are we elected for salvation? Or is it an open call for the whole world and we choose to believe and receive? Yes. Yes. The answer is yes. I believe that it's both and. It's both and. And I believe that every believer is some mixture of this that ultimately results in a saved soul. Why do I say this? Is it my opinion? No, it's not. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And I also recommend, you know, if some of these verses, they're hitting, underline them, highlight them. Write something down next to them. Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 12 and 13. So then, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. So just to clarify, this part of scripture, he isn't talking about getting saved. This letter was written to people who are already saved. So I just want to clarify that. But Paul says to work out. You work out your salvation. Do the work. You do the work to assure yourself of your salvation. But then he says, it's God who is working in you. God is the one who's doing the work, enabling you to work. So which is it? Is it you doing the work? Or is it God doing the work? Yes. Yes. Now look, I, I'm saying these things, I'm saying these things right now that it's, yes, it's both and, and I firmly believe it. I firmly believe that, it, that these things, that this, this is what it is based on what I see in the word of God. I believe this to be true based on the word of God, but this is a peripheral thing, I believe. This is a peripheral thing. I'm not going to die on this hill of, it's a mixture of the two. And frankly, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, when I first got saved, I used to like to, like, let's talk about these things. Are you a minion? Are you reformed? Are you, are you a Calvinist? Like, let's talk about this. Let's, let's debate. Now I'm just like, I'm just, it's, I'm just not interested in that anymore. But the only hill that I will die on is the one true gospel. What's the gospel? How do people get saved? And I don't think that there's a single human being that can say, yeah, I got it figured out. I've got it figured out. There's no room for discussion. Because if somebody thinks they, they have it down, behold, the omniscient one. It's a theophany. Jesus Christ is here in the flesh. They know it all. They got it down. 
Now, if you're honest, there are some things that are not going to be fully understood until we're in glory with Christ. But when we're there, is it even going to matter? When we're in the presence of Jesus, are we really going to be worried about, well, is, is it the Reformed way of thinking? Is it the Calvinistic understanding? Yeah, I don't think it'll matter much. But let's all turn to John 9. Let's all turn to John 9. Gospel of John, chapter 9. There's a, there's a quote from this guy. His name's Jim Rohn. Some of you may be familiar with him. He's like a business guy. He's, he's, he's dead now. But um, he's like a personal development type of person, you know. So, like, he's written books, and he's, he, he, speak, he used to speak at, like, business things. Um, but this, he has this quote. He says, there are some things that you don't have to know how it works. Only that it works. While some people are studying the roots, others are picking the fruits. It just depends on which end of this thing you want to get in on. So some of you may know, I used to work for this, uh, the city of Santa Monica. I used to work for the Santa Monica Police Department. And um, while we were out in the field, people used to stop us all the time. And then, you know, they'd be like, can I park here? You know, and, and uh, I used to work in, in parking. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I was doing my job. <laughs> I was trying to do my job as unto the Lord with integrity. Uh, when, there was, when there was room for grace, you know, I did show grace. But anyway, besides the fact. So, you know, we're always encouraged to educate the public. Like, we were always encouraged when they would ask us questions to use that as an opportunity to educate the public. But I would always read the person before I would start engaging them, you know? Because, like, for example, if, if a person, like, pulls into a metered parking spot they get out, they're like dancing, and you know, they're, you could tell like, oh, this guy's holding something in, and he's like, oh, can I park here? Like, I'm just gonna say, yeah, just make sure you feed the meter. Because I understand, I'm reading the situation, this guy's about to pee his pants, and he just needs to know if he could park there. So yeah, just make sure you feed the meter. Some of my colleagues, however, I don't know why, but they would see the same situation, and they would go into this whole monologue. They'd be like, can I park here? Well, sir, if, if you look at the sign that's posted, it says three-hour parking, 9 a.m. to 6 p.m., no parking, 3 a.m. to 5 a.m., uh, and given that it is currently 1,400 hours, uh, and the location of the sun would indicate that as well, uh, you are within the time restriction of which parking is okay. However, according to Santa Monica Municipal Code 3.08.12, uh, unless otherwise uh, ordered by a peace or traffic officer, when you stop standard park and a meter stalled, you must pay the meter for the given time that you will be parking, standing, or stalling. Uh, well, you know, and they just go into this whole thing. Meanwhile, the guy's pissed his pants. Like, he's, he's, he already peed his pants. He's just like, and, I could, and like, I'm standing there, because there'd be times where, like, we're teamed up, and I'm just standing there, I'm just, like, cringing, because it's like, can you please just answer this guy's question? Because if you look at his face and if you look at his body language, he doesn't care about municipal codes. Like, can I park here? Because I'm about to pee my pants and I don't want to have to come back to a ticket as well. So can I park here, yes or no? I say that because we need to make sure that we don't get sidetracked or distracted by these peripheral issues. You know, it's good to discuss these things. It's good to discuss theology. I, I love theology. When we discuss theology, it sharpens us. It reveals more of God to us. And I will never be the person who says that you should not go deeper into the word of God. I will never say that. I'm not interested in, in creating baby Christians who remain baby Christians, who never grow up in the things of the Lord, all they know is the baby Christian things, and you're just you're, you're breastfeeding them for the rest of their lives. That's not how we're supposed to be. If you read Hebrews chapter 6, we're supposed to move on to maturity. So I'm not saying that theology and doctrine and all of these things that you shouldn't delve into these things. But what I'm saying is let's not lose sight of the main thing, which is the spreading of the gospel. Spreading the gospel. People aren't saved because they understand the doctrine of election from the supralapsarian perspective. That's not what saves them. People are saved through faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. That's it. 
how that plays out, how this salvation plays out in the hearts and minds of people, I don't think it's up to us to fully determine. It's not up to us to fully determine, nor does it bear any weight on their actual salvation. So in John 9, we have this guy who was born blind and who was healed by Jesus. His sight was restored by Jesus. And then the religious leaders, they start to question this guy. Like, how did you get healed? Who healed you? Jesus healed you? Do you realize that it's the Sabbath today? You're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. He healed you on the Sabbath? Jesus is a sinner. Are you aware that Jesus is a sinner? All these questions, all these accusations against Jesus. And so let's read John chapter 9, verse 25. Let's, let's see what this guy's response was to all of these questions. He answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, now I can see. That's it. He's like, you guys are trying to figure out all these details. You're trying to figure out all these details about what happened and how it happened and who did it and how we did it. But all I know is I was blind one second, and then the next second I can see. Some people spend so much time, so much time trying to pinpoint the exact process of salvation that they begin to ignore or forget the amazing thing that salvation is. Like, dude, this guy was born blind and now he can see. How, how are you getting sidetracked from that? It was amazing. The amazing thing of salvation is that it's the regeneration and recreation of our hearts. That's the amazing thing of salvation. My wife's testimony, for those of you who, who don't know, my wife, the way that she came to the Lord, she was in this state of, like, her, she kind of grew up in the church, but not really. Her mom was a believer. And so she was, in the, she was in college in this state of, you know, not really knowing what's going on, kind of lost. And so she's, because she grew up, her mom was a Christian, she's like, man, I, I, I probably need Jesus. So she's, you know, she has a Bible. She's listening to, to Pastor Greg Glory. She's listening to a sermon from him. And uh, she's, um, she's looking, she told me that she, she, she's looking outside of her window as the sermon is going. She has a Bible in her hand. She's looking outside of her window, not even really paying attention to what Pastor Greg Laurie is saying uh, in, on, on the sermon. But one second, she's looking out the window. She's looking at a tree. One second, it's just a tree. And then the next second, she realizes that she's born again. It was just like, like that. Like one second... Just looking outside my window, looking at a tree, boom, born again. Like, that's, that's, how, that's how it happened for her. It was just like, in an instant, she became a new person. In an instant, she didn't do anything to make it happen. She wasn't actively trying to do anything. She just, she just became born again. She had a new heart, and she had a new understanding. She was looking out of her window. She was looking at a tree, and in an instant of, of her being born again, she instantaneously had an understanding that that tree was God's creation, and it was beautiful. The second prior, she wasn't thinking those things. It was just the tree. She was just uh, staring off into space, and then boom, that's God's creation, and that's beautiful. She was born again. Kind of like being chosen, right? Like she didn't really, it, was just, it just happened. My testimony, a little bit different. I heard the gospel, and over the course of about a year of sitting under preaching, going to church, reading my Bible, fellowshipping with other believers, listening to Bible studies, falling over and over and over again, over the course of, the course of about a year, the Lord sanctifying me, removing sinful thoughts and desires from my heart, just over the course of a year, I couldn't tell you when I was converted. I couldn't tell you what date. I, I just can't because I don't know. I have no idea. All I know is that it happened. My wife, she can tell you. It was that day. She was looking out the window, looking at a tree. She was born again. She had a completely different understanding of that tree. God created it. With me, not so much. But both of us, both of us couldn't tell you where it came from or how exactly it happened. We just know that it happened. All we know is that we were blind, and now we can see. We were chosen, we believed, we received, so now we work out our salvation with fear and trembling because God is the one who's at work in us. So if you're ever asked, 
this whole, this whole point, this whole first point. So if you're ever asked, well, which is it? Are you chosen or are you the one making the choice? Yes. I, I mean, I, I, can't, I can't explain the details to you, but yes. <laughs> I don't know. I, ask God when, when we stand before him how, how it all works because I don't know. But just yes, all of it. So this brings us to our second point, which is set apart. Set apart. Let's read our verses for the night again. Let's go back to 1 Peter. First Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the temporary residents dispersed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and set apart by the Spirit for obedience and for sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. So we have been chosen by the Father. We have been chosen by the Father. And now let's talk about how we have been set apart by the Spirit. We've been set apart by the Spirit. This means that we have been made separate. The theological term is sanctified. We've been sanctified. We have been separated from the world. We've been separated from the world. Another way of saying this is that we have been made holy. We're holy. We have been made holy? How is that? How is that? Only God is holy. Well... Let's take a look at some more scriptures. We're going to take a look at three scriptures that talk about how we've been set apart and made holy. So the first one, we're going to go to Ephesians. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 13 and 14. It says, When you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. So we had a couple of people last week. They heard the message of the truth, the gospel of their salvation, and they believed. They believed. They made confessions of faith. And what does, what does Ephesians say happened to them? It says that they were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the down payment of our inheritance. So God says, you want to know you want to know that you actually have salvation and that you'll be in heaven with me? Boom. Here's my holy spirit sealed. You are sealed with my holy spirit. I'm literally living inside of you now. I'm living inside of you. That's how you can know for sure. God living inside of us. That makes us holy. That sets us apart. So now let's go to Galatians. One book to the left. I still have trouble with my right and my left. I, I'm 33 years old. I still sometimes I have to I have to do the L thing. Like, okay. No wait. Was I wrong? No, no, I was right. <laughs> Galatians chapter four, and we're gonna read verses four through seven. When the time came to completion. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Another scripture talking about how when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, the spirit comes into our hearts. God comes inside of us. He lives inside of us in the form of his Holy Spirit. And this scripture goes a little deeper to say that the Spirit causes us to view God as our adopted father. He is our dad. Because that's exactly what he's done. He's adopted us. He has adopted us. We used to be slaves of sin. And we used to be God's enemies. We used to be the enemy of God. But now we have been adopted and we are now his kids we are God's kids. That's amazing. We're God's kids. He is our dad. Remember John 1.12 from earlier? We read John chapter 1 earlier. It said, um, this is what it said. It said, to those who did receive him, to them he gave the right to be children of God. To those who did receive him, to them he gave the right to be children of God. To reiterate a point that I had made a few weeks ago, we are not all, as human beings, 
we are not all automatically children of God. We're, we're just not. That's not what the Bible teaches. You must be born again. You must receive him to have that right to be called his child. You have to. So there's a lot of people out there who say, oh, we're all children of God. No, we're not. That's not what the Bible teaches. You must be born again. You must receive him to have that right. So he adopted us, and he sent his Holy Spirit into our hearts. That sets us apart. That makes us holy. So finally, let's go to Titus. Titus. It's a short little letter. Titus, we're going to read chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. It says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out this Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. So God saved us. He saved us by regenerating us and renewing us by pouring out the Holy Spirit on us because of what Jesus Christ has done. Regeneration is another one of those theological terms uh, that means the new birth that happens when you come into faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's just, it's a fancy word for, for the new birth. It's the theological word for being born again. You're regenerated. God has regenerated us. Our first birth, when we were born naturally, uh, that's, that was the first birth, but we were born spiritually dead. Though we were born naturally alive, spiritually we were born dead. So we need to be born again, but this time on the spiritual level. We need to be born again on a spiritual level, but God does that. He causes us to be born again. He regenerates us by pouring out his Holy Spirit. So Titus says that the Holy Spirit has regenerated us and renewed us. He has set us apart and made us holy. But for what reason? Why? Why have we been, why have we been set apart by the Spirit? Why have, we been made, why have we been made holy? Well, according to 1 Peter, for obedience. It says we've been set apart by the Spirit for obedience. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 19 through 20. Don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. If God has saved you, if you sit here tonight and you, you say that you have faith in Jesus, if God has saved you, that means he has adopted you. That means he bought you. And now he resides in you. Now he lives inside of you. So know that now that means that you no longer belong to yourself. Quite simply, you no longer belong to yourself. You are not your own. Now you need to obey. You need to obey. God has made you holy by sending his spirit to live inside of you. So that makes you holy. But now you need to live holy. Now you need to live holy. A little later in 1 Peter, you don't have to turn there, but in a few weeks, we're going to go over 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. It says, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all of your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. That's God speaking. So here's a pretty radical statement. We don't have to sin anymore. We don't. We do not have to sin anymore. Romans 8.11, it says that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead 
if you're a believer in here, he now lives in you. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. What kind of power does it take to raise somebody from the dead? Somebody is dead, like dead, dead, like actually dead, D-E-D, dead. And what kind of, I know, what kind of power does it take to make that body come back to life? That's the kind of power that lives inside of every single one of us if you are a believer, if you are born again. So, yeah, we don't have to sin anymore if we have that kind of power living inside of us. Jesus said in, in John chapter 8, verse 34, he said, I assure you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. That was us before coming to Christ. That was us before coming to Christ and the Holy Spirit regenerating us and renewing us. But in Galatians 5.1, Paul says that Christ has liberated us. So before Christ, we sinned because we're slaves to sin. But Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says that Christ has liberated us. He has set us free. For what reason? Simply to be free. He has set us free simply to be free from sin. Prior to Christ, we were slaves of sin, so we sinned. Now, we have been set free. Our free will, our true free will, has been restored to us because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Now we actually have a choice. Before, we didn't have a choice. We had no choice but to sin. That's all we did. We were slaves to sin, so we sinned. That, that theological term is depravity. We were depraved. We had no choice but to fulfill the lust of our flesh, to obey our master, which was sin. So we sinned. But now, now, we have freedom. We have freedom in Christ. Now we have the choice of whether or not to sin. Now we have the choice. It is a choice to sin. How many of you guys have ever seen The Matrix? We talked about it, but how many of you have seen The Matrix? Few people, right on. Okay, but you never saw Equilibrium. You're probably one of those haters. <laughs> um, but The Matrix. So in case you're unaware of what this movie is, um, it's set in the future, and of course, and AI machines, they've taken over. They've taken over the world. And they're now using human beings as basically as batteries, as power sources. Um, they need to feed themselves, so they use human beings. So they have like these, these human being farms um, somewhere in the world. And, but what the machines did is that they created this world known as the Matrix, where all humans are basically living in a computer program. As the humans are like being incubated in these little pods waiting to be used as energy sources, their minds are in this computer program called the Matrix. And, um, uh, of course, the humans, they're, they're unaware of it. All, the human, all of humanity, they're unaware that they're living in this, in this simulated world. Um, to them, they're just, they're just living life in the real world. That's just, it's just real life. But they're not. They're not living in the real world. They're living in a computer program. So humans are being, in this movie, humans are being saved out of the matrix. They're being pulled out of the matrix. They're being shown like, hey, this isn't the real world. I can show you what the real world actually is. And so they, they get set free, and the real world is like just this dystopian future. Like it's just, it's, it's an annihilated world. Like it's just, it's, it's not much to look at, but they're free. They, they're out of the matrix, so they're, they've been set free. And the whole series culminates in a battle between the machines and, and the humans and other things. But anyway, in the first movie, there's this character named Cyrus. You guys, if you guys have seen it, you guys remember Cyrus? So Cyrus... He's fed up with the real world. He got taken out of the matrix. He got set free from the matrix, and he's living in this real world, and he, it, he's not liking it anymore. It's rough. All of, the, all of the, the, the pleasures of living in the matrix, they're not there anymore. But he's living in the real world. So he wants to go back into the matrix. He wants to go back to living inside of the matrix, even though the matrix isn't the real world. It isn't the real world, even though... In the matrix, he is a slave to the machines to be used as a battery. He still wants to go back to living in the matrix because he can't handle the real world. So he does. He meets up with one of the, like some computer program, and he strikes up a deal to get himself reimplanted into the matrix. So he knew the truth. He knew the truth. 
He was set free from the matrix, but he chose to go back and to be re-enslaved to the thing that he was set free from. So it is that there are those who will willfully go back into their life of sin. They will willfully go back. You know, that would indicate to me that they don't have the spirit inside of them. If they're willingly going back into the world and, and, and submitting themselves to a lifestyle of sin, depravity, then maybe it means that they were never truly born again. Maybe they didn't have a regenerating experience with God. But what about when we fall? Those of us who would say, yes, we know God. We've been regenerated. We're born again. We, we have a relationship with, with Jesus Christ. What about when we fall into sin, even though we really didn't want to? We didn't have enough self-control in the moment. We slip up. Why does this happen? If we have the Spirit of God, if we have the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, why do we fall? Why do we fall into sin? Well, to answer this question, let's go to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. We're going to read verses 15 through 24. For I do not understand what I'm doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin that lives in me. So I discover this principle. When I want to do what is good, evil is with me. For in my inner self, I joyfully agree with God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this dying body? In verse 21, Paul says, so I discover this principle. What's this principle? It says, when I want to do what is good, evil is with me. When I want to do the right thing, evil is with me. When I want to obey, evil is with me. When you want to do the right thing, evil is with you. This is the principle of indwelling sin, the sin that still lives inside of us, that even though we've been regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit, while we remain in these fallen bodies, we will have this struggle. We will have this struggle. So does that now give us an excuse, you know, a license to sin and just be okay with it? No. Let's look at one chapter before this. Roman, we were in Romans 7. Let's get Romans 6. Romans 6, we're going to read verses 15 through 18. It says, What then? Should we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching you were transferred to, and having been liberated from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. Paul's coming against the thought that says, because we have been saved by God's grace, then we can just go ahead and live however sinfully we want. He's coming against that. Because, I mean, hey, you know, if, if God saved us while we were in sin, and his grace will always be there to outweigh my sin, then we can just continue in sin, right? What does Paul say? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. He says that although you used to be a slave to sin, because you've been liberated from sin, now you're a slave of righteousness. You're a slave of obedience. Peter says that the Spirit set us apart for obedience. He made us holy for the purpose of obedience. And we have the ability now, now that we have been born again, and God himself lives inside of us, equipping us with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Now we have the ability. And we use this power to fight against the indwelling sin in order to obey God. 
And we can have the victory of obedience. We, we really can. We can have the victory of obedience if we so choose to. But you need to equip yourself for this fight so that you can have the victory. But what happens when we're defeated? What happens when we fall? Even though we make every effort to have victory and obey. Well, this brings us to our final point of the night, which is sprinkled. So turn your Bibles to Exodus 24. Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 24. It's the second book of the Bible, Exodus 24. And I'm going to read our first Peter verses again, but this time I'm going to read it out of the New American Standard Bible. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, of God the Father. You have been set apart and sanctified by God the Spirit for obedience. And now you have been sprinkled with the blood of God the Son, Jesus. So what does this mean? Well, this brings us to Exodus 24. In this section of Exodus, God is establishing his first covenant with the children of Israel. He has given them 10 commandments so far, and he'll eventually give them over 600 other commandments to follow under this, this covenant that he's making with them. And this is how he establishes his covenant with them. After he gives them the law, he tells them in verse 8, Exodus uh, 34, verse 8, he says, Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. So the first covenant, the first covenant, this way that God had provided for the people to be connected with them, the way that he confirms it with them is that there's, he sprinkles them with the blood of a sacrifice. He sprinkles them with blood. And so the same idea is used in the new covenant, the covenant of the cross, except now we're, we're sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. We're not sprinkled with, with a bull or a goat. We're sprinkled with the, with the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So let's go to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12. We're almost there, guys. I hope you guys are getting something out of this. I sure did. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. It says, For you have not come to what could be touched to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. And if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses, uh, that Moses said, I am terrified and trembling. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels and festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to God who is the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous uh, people made perfect, to Jesus mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. It sure does. My blood has cholesterol in it. I don't think Jesus' blood had cholesterol in it. So <laughs> that blood, his blood is way better than Abel's. Um, but the writer of Hebrews, he's making a comparison here. He's making a comparison between the first covenant and the new one. And under the first covenant, when God first spoke to the children of Israel, it terrified them. It terrified them. It says that when God spoke to them from the mountain, and they were like down at the foot of the mountain, when God spoke to them, they said, Moses, please don't ever let him speak to us again. Because if he does, we are going to die. Like, have you guys ever been in a, in a venue where like the music is playing so loud that you just like you feel it in your soul? Well, multiply that by like, I don't know, a few hundred billion. We're like, it's just the audible voice of God. And it's just like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to survive this. That's how they felt. So like, okay, please don't let them talk to us anymore. Moses, you get the info and you pass it along to us because we can handle your voice. So the first covenant, a less than personal covenant, uh, was confirmed by the sprinkling of the sacrificial blood that we just read in Exodus. But now, now we have a new covenant, a new covenant, a more personal covenant, confirmed by the sprinkling of the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ. And then there's another section in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 20, where it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, 
by a new and living way he has opened for us through the curtain. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart of full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Once again, the writer of Hebrews, he's, he's drawing a distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant. The, new, the, the old covenant of death and the new personal covenant of life. He says that our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Our hearts have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And in that sprinkling, we have been made clean and holy and we're no longer slaves to evil. No longer slaves to evil. But we will have our struggles. We will have our struggles. And when we fall to our struggles because of that indwelling sin, we need to remember that we have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. Remember that. We have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. In 1 John 1, 9, it says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If you confess your sins to him, he will cleanse you and he will forgive you. Let's go to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. If you remember in our second point, we read Romans chapter 7, where Paul's lamenting about his inability to do what is right because of the indwelling sin that's waging war within himself. So actually, let's start at chapter 7, verse 21, and then we'll continue to chapter 8, verse 2. So it says, so I discover this principle. When I want to do what is good, evil is with me. For in my inner self, I joyfully agree with God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this dying body? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh to the law of sin. That is where it gets good. Therefore, chapter 8, verse 1, therefore, meaning... Because Jesus Christ died and the Spirit has regenerated me, because of that, therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus. Because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. This right here is one of the greatest verses to encourage any believer when you fall. Whenever you fall to sin, you, believer, you, you are no longer under the law of sin and death. No longer under the law of sin and death. If you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, if you have been sanctified or set apart by the Spirit of God for obedience, and if you have been sprinkled by the blood of God the Son, then there is no condemnation left for you. There is no condemnation left for you because the law of sin the law of sin is what condemns you. That's what condemns you. But you're no longer under that law. You're no longer under that law. The Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. So there's nothing left to condemn you. Nothing. There's nothing that can condemn you. You've been set free from that law that would condemn you. You're free from that. So if you fall into sin, confess it to God. Be, be real. God, I did this thing. God, I looked at pornography again. God, I, 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 see, I see this girl and I hate her because of the way that she looks. Confess it to God. Repent and move forward in the love and the strength of God. Repent because there's nothing left to condemn you anymore. You're free. So two things I want to share, I want to I note before, as I'm sharing this truth. If this, if what I just said causes you to be like, Wow, thank you, God. I never want to do those sins again. I never want to do that again. I hate my sin because of this amazing thing that you have done for me. Hey, it's probably because you actually know God and you're born again. But if this thing that I'm sharing with you that there's no condemnation for you anymore causes you to be like, oh, well, if that's the case, let's go. You know, let's go, let's go do all the things that I want to do because there's no condemnation, right? So I could just go ahead and willfully do all of these things. If that's your thinking, well, it's probably because you, you don't know God. You're not born again. You're, you haven't been regenerated by the Spirit because the Spirit lives inside of you. 
it will cause you to love God. So examine yourself. Just examine yourself. See if you actually come to know God or if you're just deceiving yourself. And if you're deceiving yourself, if you realize that you've been deceiving yourself, just change directions. Just change directions. Repent. Believe in the gospel. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. And so our verse for the night, the end of verse 2, it says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So now, now you all have grace. You have grace. You have undeserved favor from God. Now you have kindness from God. Now you have joy, pleasure, and acceptance from God. Now God delights in you because you're holy. Maybe you don't feel holy. I don't feel holy. But you are. You are because God has placed his Holy Spirit inside of you because of your faith in Jesus. So now you are holy. Just accept it. There's nothing you can do about it. If you believe in God, he's put his spirit inside of you. You're holy. I don't care how you feel. You're holy. All right? Stop fighting. Just, you're holy. All right, cool. I'm holy. Right on. Relax. You have grace now. You have grace. And now you also have peace. Now you have peace. Now you have tranquility. Now you have safety. Now you have harmony with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. You're not God's enemy anymore. You're not his enemy anymore. Now you are his child. Now your soul is in a state of, of tranquility because your salvation is secure. And you have no wrath or judgment to fear when your life is done on this earth. You have nothing to fear now. So your soul has tranquility. Your soul has rest because you have been supplied with your purpose of existing, which is to live for and to glorify God. So now you have grace and peace in an endless supply. So may it be multiplied to you. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the temporary residents dispersed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, set apart by the Spirit for obedience and for the sprinkling with blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So as we close, I just want to share a quote from Warren Wiersbe in relation to this opening verse in 1 Peter. He says, quote, As far as God the Father is concerned, I was saved when he chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. As far as the Son is concerned, I was saved when he died for me on the cross. But as far as the Spirit is concerned, I was saved one night in May 1945 when I heard the gospel and received Christ. Then it all came together. But it took all three persons of the Godhead to bring me to salvation. If we separate these ministries, we will either deny divine sovereignty or human responsibility, and that would lead to heresy. So I invite the band to come on up. So if you're here today as a believer, if you're a believer, as far as God is concerned, you were saved when he chose you in Christ before he even said, let there be light. You were already saved. You were already saved. You've been saved since before the foundations of the earth. As far as Jesus is concerned, because of God's choosing you, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was applied to you the moment that Jesus died and rose from the dead. You were nowhere near being born back in AD 33, but you were already cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And as far as the Spirit is concerned, because God's choosing and because of Christ's sacrifice, you were saved the day that you heard the gospel and received the good news. You've been saved even before the day you heard the gospel. Since before the foundation of the world, you were already saved. I don't mean practically. I'm just saying because God chose you. This is beautiful. This is a beautiful and mysterious thing. It's hard, to, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around this thing. But that's because I'm a created thing. I'm subject to time. I'm subject to time and space. But God, he's the creator of time. He's eternal and infinite. So that's how he's able to choose us. And we choose him and it all makes sense to him. It's deep. It's so deep, this, this calling, this choosing, this election. It's deep. This whole idea of God choosing us is deep, but, but, but what's really deep is how much he loves every single one of us. That's deep. God's love for you is deep, 
from the beginning, he already had a plan to save you from your sin. From before the foundation of the world, he knew the depths of your sin against him. He knew how disgusting your sin was going to be against him before the foundation of the world. But his love for you is deeper. From before the foundation of the world, he knew that you were going to need to be saved and forgiven because of your sin. Because your sin against him creates a need for his justice to be served. But that justice means eternal damnation in hell. But his love for you is deep. So he chose to send his son. He sent his son, but the son also came voluntarily to be punished for your sins on your behalf. He was crucified, he died, he rose again because his love for you is deep. And all that any of us needs to do is just repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and turn to Jesus. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Place your faith in what Jesus Christ has done to save you from God's wrath and his judgment. It's that simple because his love is deep. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for tonight. I pray, God, that your word would um, go forth and do the work that you've set it out to do. God, I pray that we would have a greater understanding of your love for us. And um, as we pray, as, as I'm praying, I just want you guys to, you know, keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Uh, and I just want to provide an, an invitation to all of you. Um, some of you I don't know. I don't know some of you. I know a good amount of you, but some of you I don't know. If there's anybody here who uh, you don't know Jesus, you've never had a relationship with Christ, maybe you've, you've made some sort of commitment in the past, but you've fallen away, maybe proving to yourself that you didn't actually know him or whatever, whatever the case may be. But if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you've never responded to this gospel in faith and repentance, maybe this gospel is making sense to you now. If there's anybody here who would like to make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ to be set free from your sins, from your slavery to sin, to be saved from God's wrath, then I want to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm not going to do that. I just, I want to pray for you. So please, if that is you, raise your hand. Raise your hand. I want to pray for you. God bless you right there and you. I see that. God bless you. Is there anybody else who would like to respond in faith? God bless you. You're listening to this message. You're hearing the message of God's love for you. And you want Jesus Christ. Is there anybody else who wants to make a profession of faith tonight? Because I want to pray for you. Like I said, I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. Anybody else? Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray. God, I just want to thank you for these... Uh, these young ladies and this gentleman who, who raise their hands to just signify that they want you. They want Christ. They want the salvation that is offered in the cross of Christ. And so, God, I just I pray for them now. I lift them up to you. I pray that the message that was spoken tonight, the message that was preached was clear and it was understandable. God, and even now, I pray that you would continue to give them understanding for this message, for this gospel you died for their sins and you love them. You rose again from the dead. And if they believe in you, you will give them your righteousness, your perfect righteousness, and you will take away their sin. And they can be regenerated. They can be born again. And it's the work of your spirit that does that. And so I pray that you would cause them to be born again, that you would regenerate them, and that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit, that you would seal them with your Holy Spirit as a down payment for the future inheritance that they're going to have when they stand before you and you tell them, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You can come in. So seal them with the Holy Spirit, God, and I pray that you would give them the boldness and the courage to continue seeking you. And God, I pray for everybody else here who you know, maybe they just, they don't know you and they, they, they just are, re they're rejecting you. They don't want anything to do with you or, yeah, it sounds nice for you, but not for me. That's fine, God. Your word of God never returns void. 
your word never returns void. It can return in salvation and it can return in condemnation. But God, I just pray that you would work on those people who, who, who have chosen to reject, that you would continue working on their hearts to soften them so that they can respond in faith. And I pray for the believers in here, God. I pray that you would encourage them with the word that was preached tonight. I pray, God, that the worship that we offer up to you now in, in, in song, that you, would, uh, that you would be glorified and, and blessed by it, God. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for those of you who, who uh, made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, um, or for anybody who needs prayer, we have our leaders in the back. Uh, we have our ladies over here. So if, if you're a lady and you need prayer, we have Renee, Kelly, and Alicia. And then for you gentlemen, if you need prayer, uh, we have Ronald and Tony back there. So go back and get prayer. Uh, even during worship, it's fine. You know, they'll, they'll pray with you. And um, yeah, let's just, let's worship the Lord. Let's worship. <laughs>